Hello everybody, welcome to Coach Gethin Radio. I'm joined today by Tony Gentlecore. Tony is the co-founder of the world-renowned Cressy Sports Performance. He now coaches out of his own studio, Core, located in Boston, Massachusetts. He has also contributed to men's health, women's health, men's fitness, T-Nation, bodybuilding.com, muscle and fitness, and stack.com. On Instagram, you're currently documenting your Achilles tendon recovery. For the listeners who don't follow you, can you give us a brief rundown on what happened and what you've been up to regarding your training? Oh, man, that uh, this I have like a, a slight case of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder when I when I when I talk about this now. So um, my wife and I during quarantine, we were probably in week. I think seven or eight of quarantine here in Boston. And we live in a small-ish apartment uh, with a three-year-old because he he is currently not in daycare. Um, so we decided to, to drive down to Florida, where she's originally from, uh, to, to spend a few weeks at her mom's place. And uh, part of that, and, and where, where she is located in Florida is probably a 45-minute drive from Cressy Sports Performance, Florida. Um, so once a week we would drive there just to get some barbells in our hands, which is very, <laughs> it was superb to not do body weight and bands and kettlebell workouts. Like, okay, we're getting barbells in our hands. So the third week that we did that, um, I was warming up a little bit. I, I wanted to do some heavyish deadlifting and squatting. So I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll do some like easy light plyometric work just to kind of get my nervous system going. And, um, I did some skipping drills nothing crazy. Uh, then I, what I was doing was a, a, a jump back start. So like a little hop up in the air, you know, my right foot plants behind me and then I, I supposed to go. So on my fourth one, I went to do that and I just immediately fell to the ground. Like instantly, as soon as my, my, my right foot hit the ground, I fell to the ground. Um, and Eric was funny enough, like I was standing like five feet away from me and he's like, Oh, what happened? And, uh, I was like, I, I don't know. Then I, I get up and, you know, I, I started walking around and it just felt like the, the sole of my shoe had exploded. It yeah. didn't, but it just felt like that. Cause, cause obviously in, in hindsight, my, my heel was not, was no longer attached to, to my ankle because I had a full rupture. Um, so that was the mechanism of what happened. Just a heavy, you know, pretty explosive, powerful eccentric loading, and then go to do change of direction, and my my tendon just snapped. Um, I didn't feel any anything weird prior to that. I didn't. Uh, I don't feel I was doing anything super aggressive. Um, but again, in hindsight, given that I was probably eight, nine, ten weeks into quarantine, I wasn't doing a lot of plyometric work up to that point. But I just wanted to do a few sprints just to get myself ready for some deadlifting and squatting. And it was it probably just came down to a little load management issue, like my. My tendons, tendons just weren't used to that at the moment. Um, and it's just, it was just one of those things, a string of bad luck, and it snapped. Um, luckily, I was able to, the following day, I was able, Eric hooked me up with a, um, an ortho that was in, uh, near him um, and just at least put me in a boot, put me in a plantar flex position to kind of make sure that that tendon wasn't going to, that Achilles wasn't going to be, uh, be more injured and um, basically confirmed that it was a rupture. And then uh, two days after that, three days after that, I was on a flight back up to Boston to meet with the orthopedic up here. Um, and I was in surgery three days after that. So um, I'm currently one week post-surgery, 
And uh, the thing that bothers me, I mean, just being around on crutches sucks. I'm just basically, I have to rely on my crutches and, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a splint right now and my, and my, my leg has been bandaged for the past week and I haven't been able to touch it. I can't, I can't do anything with it until I go to my first, my first appointment, post-surgery appointment. But, um, you know, I've been trying, the, I respected the, the, the rules for the first five days where it's like, I was told to stay off it, no weight bearing, and I'm still no weight bearing, but I took the first four days post-surgery and, and basically did couch planks via Ben Bruno, just sitting on the couch watching a lot of a lot of Netflix and um you know but now the past uh four or five days I'm I've been going to the gym and just kind of doing like some bench pressing, some seated landmine presses and um doing some like open chain lower body work. Um you know essentially you know you you, you mentioned that I've been documenting it on on Instagram. Yeah. Um I essentially just demonstrating that when you're injured it's, you, you can still find your trainable menu. I'm a, I'm a firm advocate that you can train around pretty much any injury. Um, I think a lot of people like to use injury as an excuse, like, oh, I'm just going to rest and lay low and not do anything. Um, I, I do not fall into that camp. So if anything, what I'm trying to do at this stage um, is not be a hero, not do anything stupid. Um, you know, I'm not trying to, like, break any records or, like, you know, get Instagram likes by doing like these really aggressive exercises that I shouldn't be doing at this stage. But I am trying to demonstrate that you can still train um, and that that will help hopefully uh, the recovery process that I'll that I'll bounce back quicker um, because I am being active. Um, so that that's where I'm at right now as far as the <laughs> Achilles injury. Um, what was interesting is when immediately post-surgery when I was in recovery and waking up the the number two doctor who was who was in my procedure, I actually asked him if like when they went in to repair my Achilles, if they saw any previous form or previous signs of tendinosis, uh, and they said they didn't. So, um, oh, wow. so yeah. which just goes to show that you know in hindsight it was absolutely my fault <laughs> for <laughs> you know for. But I'm also I, I don't feel I was doing anything stupid or super aggressive. Like I, that was my that was my fourth sprint. It wasn't like I was on sprint 20. Um, but, you know, obviously my body was like, nope, you're not ready. <laughs> and, uh, and it just happened. So um, I'm trying to treat this as a gift of injury scenario. And, you know, as I as I move as I move forward in this process, I, I hope to document it just to say, here's here's what I'm doing in physical therapy. And here's. Here's how I'm um, approaching everything. And, you know, and there have been many other fitness professionals ahead of me who have documented the same injury um, and have bounced back relatively quickly because um, this is a pretty pesky injury. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it can take for some people, it takes over a year to recover. Others are within a six month window, you know, others sometimes quicker. But, you know, I'm certainly I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of framing it in my mind that I it's going to take about a year to, to get back to, to normal and where, where I was before. Yeah. Funny enough, I was pretty much going to be my next question. And Oh, sorry. Yeah. I jumped the gun. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, the thing is like, I remember I fractured my foot, um, spiral fracture on my fifth metatarsal when I was 21. And I was actually on crutches for nine months cause it was a very severe oh, break. Man. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I was gutted. I missed out on a number of competitions, but 
my arms were jacked at the end of it, so you know that's a massive plus. You could kind of <laughs> my, take away. My wife, my wife is all for me getting a, a nice set of pecs and bolt and beefy shoulders during this time. So uh, I'm I'm gonna try my best to uh, to accommodate her during this time. I mean, it makes me sad because I the thought of not deadlifting and squatting and you know not being able to train hard in the lower body and like you know losing losing my ass. Uh, <laughs> uh, literally speaking, um, makes me sad, but I, you know, I, it'll be, it'll be a nice little journey back, uh, once, once I am able to do that stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, again, I'm trying to find the trainable window and, you know, I, I am, I am very much on board with, like, okay, I'm going to use this time to, to build my bench press, um, you know, and just get, I'm now, I'm just going to be the prototypical meathead where I have like a really big upper body now and like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like dinky, legs. dinky legs. So, um, you know, that's not my favorite, but you know, it's, it's just the, that's just the, the way it's going to be for the next several months. Yeah. So, um, obviously going in, uh, trying to go a bit into depth with your training methodology in a okay. T Nation article you've written quite a while ago now called The Rule of 90%. Uh, you mentioned the importance of lifting at 90% of your one repetition max uh, for both neural and muscular development. Sure. How, how may the average person incorporate this into his routine? So looking at someone who probably isn't very competitive. Yeah, um, I've probably changed my viewpoint on, on this since I, since I wrote that article. Because if I recall, I might have wrote that article back in, if I had to guess, probably 2007, 2008 ish around around that time um and the principle is based off of uh uh um uh vladimir zasiorsky's work um when we when we're using his idea or his research show that when you train at 90 percent of one rep max you you kind of maximize um rate coding um, um muscular stimulation um nerve recruit or muscle fiber recruitment and bar speed tends to be somewhat fast um, so you kind of get the best of both worlds where you get in the neural and, and muscular adaptations. Um, I think for the average person, if, 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 if getting as strong as possible is not their goal, um, that's probably not the best approach. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. So, however, there, there are many individuals, myself included that I work with who are just regular people, um, who, who like the idea of just like, I, I want to be strong. You know, I, you know, I am not a power lifter. I've never competed in power lifting. I don't, I don't proclaim to be a power lifter, but I definitely gravitate towards the, the barbell lifts and the big three. So deadlift, squat, bench press. Um, and I very much like the idea of being strong in those lifts because I, I'm a meathead and that, that's just the way I am. Uh, and I do tend to get that demographic that trains in me quite often. Um, and the bulk of people that I work with now who are gen pop, just your regular people, I wouldn't say this is something I use with them right out of the gate. I'm more concerned with just, you know, using volume, uh, with submaximal work and with submaximal work, you know, we, we can, we can maybe argue on w what window that is, but for the most part, we're going to say it's, it's between 65 to 85% of one rep max, um, where we're doing sets of five, sets of six, sets of eight, sets of 10. We're just, we're just building volume to get make a wider base so we can get to a higher peak because um, i think a lot of people get in this trap where they're always testing their strength rather than building their strength and i do think a lot of people fall in the trap that we we have to train super heavy all the time in order to get stronger 
Um, and if you're a beginner and intermediate lifter, that's certainly not the case. <laughs> I mean, uh, I do think training in that 65 to 85% range and you just use linear periodization and you just, you know, work on progressive overload you, that, that will last you a couple of years actually of training. Um, however, if one, if someone's goal is to say, I do want to compete in powerlifting or I do want to get super strong in these lifts, then yeah, I think, I think training at 90% or, or, or including it into your programming, um, behooves you. I think it, it, it will definitely bode in your favor. But even still, that's not something that I would necessarily say has to be done weekly. Um, it might be like a bi-weekly thing every two weeks. Because uh, if you're factoring in three lifts, bench, deadlift, squat, you know, it, it, you might even divide that um, weekly by the, by the movement. So week one, you're hitting 90% at dead, deadlift. Week two, you're hitting 90% with your squat. Week three, bench press. And then, then you're intermingling all those sub-maximal work in there which is basically your repetition method anyway. Um, I think I answered your question. I know I was rambling. Yeah, um, no, very much so. So I guess the short answer is I don't think it's absolutely necessary to be training at that uh, high percentage of one rep max. Um, but again, if your goal is to get as strong as possible, sure. I think it's, it's certainly important, and the science and research backs that up. Yeah, absolutely. I know... Um just a number of rugby players I've worked with who are not, they're not elite athletes, they're just weekend warriors. And sure. I know from their perspective, that'll be very interesting because they are quite obsessed with, I want a heavy bench more than anything else. I want a heavy bench. I want a heavy deadlift. Um, so that's very interesting. So you use linear periodization. That's actually um, how I tend to start sure. clients out. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, obviously looking at one repetition max testing, um, when would be an appropriate time to obviously bring that in? And when you have a new client, would it be worth looking at rate of perceived exertion or some other way yeah, of managing I, it? I, I, I honestly, it's been years since I've, I've gone on my way to test one rep max with any of my clients. Cause I just don't feel like that's, that's necessary. <laughs> yeah. I don't want them to get in the mindset like, Oh, we got, we got to test our strength. We got to test our strength. Cause honestly, if you, if you, if you, or approach your training where it's like, okay, my goal is, is to make your three rep max your five rep max. Okay. Like chances are the one rep max is going to go up too, you know? And, and, and then, cause I do think there's a, there's a degree of, of cost benefit here when we're training at 90% and heavier all the time. Um, where it's like, you know, rate of injury can be increased. It's just, it's just, it's just not necessary. And honestly, re referring to your friends, rugby players, uh, and you know, I, I, when I was at Cressy Sports Performance, um, for the first eight years of my, of, of its existence, you know, we worked with a lot of baseball players and of course we wanted to get them stronger. I, I do think strength is kind of the base of all these other qualities that we try to build on. Like if you're not strong in the first place, it's kind of hard to build more endurance or more strength endurance or more speed strength or, or anything like that. Um, but we all, we, there are oftentimes we'd have to have a conversation with an athlete who was just dead set and like, Oh, I got to get my, okay, my, my trap bar deadlift is 405. Now I, I got to make it 450 or I got to make it 500. Um, and I, we have to be, have a conversation and be like, dude, you're probably strong enough already. Like you increasing your deadlift from 405 to 450 or 450 to 500 isn't necessarily going to make you throw a baseball harder. <laughs> You know, there's there's probably not going to be that much of an increase in your fastball um, by you going by increasing your deadlift 50 pounds. But there's going to be a, 
a stark increase in, in, in like the aggressiveness of the training that it was, it's going to take to get there and risk of injury. So let's, let's just pump the brakes a little bit. <laughs> um, so we, and I had to have that conversation quite often with, with our, with our athletes there. And they, and eventually they got it. It's like, you know, honestly, if, if you're, even if you are trap bar deadlifting, deadlifting 405 for reps, like you're pretty darn strong if you're doing that for reps. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for most people that is, probably strong enough and then we have to start talking about like the quality of the movement and how it looks and technique and all that stuff but um uh i don't remember the original question that you asked but i think i answered it um in the sense that um yeah let me know if i didn't know no you did absolutely okay. um, well i was just I, curious um obviously as to what kind of dimension you'd use if you're not using one rep max uh one rep max with um your... Well, that's right, because you're asking about linear periodization and what else I would use. That's right. Um, so yeah, in, in that res- in that respect, yeah, rate of perceived exertion is something that I, I've I've implemented, but it, that's also a very abstract concept for a lot of people. If you tell them, okay, I want a rate of perceived exertion of nine on this exercise, it takes it takes quite a while for somebody to get it <laughs> to yeah. to understand what a nine actually feels like. Um, However, one but one thing I've been using of late that I like a lot that I that I've got from uh, Mike Israel of of um, um, Renaissance Periodization or Renaissance I think that's what the company's called but reps in reserve. Um, so I might say I want two reps in reserve or three reps in reserve or one rep in reserve on certain sets to the point where it's like okay I want you I want this set. To go, you're going to go as long as you can until you feel like you can only do three reps, or until you feel like you can only do two more reps with good technique. That that's a concept that most people can can metabolize a little bit better. That it just makes a little bit more sense, um, and it also gets people to work hard. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll hand I'll hand them the dumbbells, or I'll, I'll load up the trap bar. I say, okay, two reps in reserve, and I had they're only going to get maybe six repetitions. Like I kind of already know as their coach, like where they're going to be, but if, if they crush it and let's say, you know, I'm expecting them to get six reps on this, on this certain set and they bang out 15, um, then I know we're, we're going to, we're not using as aggressive of a weight as we should be. So then I know, okay, we have to bump the weight up a little bit. And it's a, it's a nice learning process for them to kind of get that. A lot of times people tend to undershoot their strength and what they're capable of doing. Um, and that's a, just a nice way of get them to understand that they could probably work harder than they, than they, than they think they can. I imagine it's quite encouraging for them as well. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, sometimes they hate it because it's intimidating too. And I respect that. Like I, I certainly, you know, I've had many people come in who, um, you know, they they might be used to doing dumbbell presses with 25 pound dumbbells. Um, I know you guys use KGs and we're weird and we use pounds, but, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, and I'll, I'll hand them the 40s, and they're like, "Oh my God, what?" And I was like, "Just, I'm not gonna. I, trust me, you're gonna be able to do it." And then they bang out the same number of reps. I'm like, "See, um, people. I mean, you've probably got you've probably gotten this phenomenon too, where people definitely underestimate their 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 strength and what they're capable of doing. And Massively. You know, sometimes it just takes takes me as their coach to kind of nudge them a little bit." Um, you know, and I can just, and and, and the, that that reps and reserve concept is a nice way of doing that. Brilliant. Um, so I've worked with many people who struggle to deadlift from the floor mm-hmm. without losing their posture. Mm-hmm. What interventions would you put in place so that somebody, well, with 
for somebody who does have this issue, who, let's say, they can hold their posture, but let's say the bar gets past their knees and next thing you know, they lose their position. Yeah. Um, so I always, when, when this topic comes up, when we talk about deadlifting and deadlifting from the floor, uh, I like to have a conversation with people saying, like, listen, uh, there are only really two demographics of people that, that have to pull from the floor. Those are power, competitive power lifters and those are competitive Olympic lifters. Those are the only two people that in, in, the, in the entire world that have to pull from the floor with a straight bar. Um, are you in that camp? And the more, more often than not, they're going to say no. <laughs> uh, and then I, then I say, and we don't, we don't, a deadlift, you don't even have to do with a straight bar. There are other ways of training a hip hinge that don't involve using a straight bar. Because to me, the straight bar is kind of like top of the pyramid as far as like risk reward and 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 the, and the technical aspect of it. Um, you know, and honestly, I would say 95% of my clients in my entire career have have started with and have stuck with only the trap bar. Because uh, I just feel like that's a way more user-friendly way of, of deadlifting. It gets people in a better position. It takes into account any mobility deficits that somebody may have. Um, so if anything, I can. it's very rare when I can't have somebody perform a pretty darn good-looking deadlift with a trap bar right, right out of the gate on day one. Um, which isn't to say sometimes I have to even regress it more where I might say, okay, we're going to use a, a very light kettlebell, elevate it a little bit so they're right over the kettlebell, um, it's a little less intimidating for some people. Um, that's an option. I've had people do landmine deadlifts or, or an angled bar deadlift, um, which I like because it, it kind of the barbell makes them hinge back uh, when yeah. when they when they lower the barbell. So that's a nice way of like grooving that nice hip hinge pattern. Um, I've used pull throughs as a way of 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 cueing um, or better grooving a hip hinge. Um, but to answer your question, as far as like any with a straight bar. I mean, honestly, um, working with people and, and getting them to appreciate just how much full body tension they need in order to get into a proper position um, is what I do right out of the gate. Uh, you know, I, I'll have them bend over, grab the barbells if they were sitting up to do the pull, and I'll say, okay, hold it there. Uh, and I'll say, where do you feel tension? And a lot of times they're like, man, I don't really feel anything. Um, and that's wrong. <laughs> like yeah. when, when they bend over to grab the barbell and get in position to, to really pull it, which is really a push, really push away from the ground. I want them to feel a lot of hamstring tension. I want them to feel their lats firing like crazy. I want them to have a big belly full of air. Uh, and so a lot of times I'll, I'll spend a good five or 10 minutes with somebody just having them get into a set position and really learning what it feels like, uh, uh, to what, what, what a proper setup feels like and how much tension is involved so they can counteract that sheer force on their spine. So they, they're, they're less likely to run their back or lose their shoulders or, or anything like that. Cause they just, they're just like, Oh, I'm just going to bend over and, and pick up a barbell. And that, that's not necessarily the case. It's, there's a lot more nuance to it to than just that. Um, and then, then we can have a conversation about stance. I mean, no, I think we a lot of people have been programmed to think that they have to do a conventional stance, which is a narrower stance, feet close together, hands outside the knees. Um, and to me, that is like top tier deadlift. Like that is the pinnacle, like most aggressive um, form of deadlifting. Uh, and honestly, like I, I've played around with people's positioning where I have them adopt more of a modified sumo stance, like a little bit of a wider stance hands inside the knees, 
Um, and that just allows them to keep a more upright torso, which to me is a home run. I mean, I, I want them to protect their spine when, when they're when they're deadlifting. Um, and to me, you know, sumo is not cheating. It's just a different form of deadlift. Uh, and a lot of times people have a lot of success with just a, a wider stance and playing around with foot position. And um, everyone's a little bit different. So, you know, I just try to figure out what stance feels best to them. You know, are they able to keep a neutral spine where they're not rounding their back and they're they're and, and they're maintaining that position throughout? And then we're we're off to the races. Yeah, very interested about stance actually because um, I was reading up on one of your articles and the thing is not not only is everybody's physiology uh, different, but obviously when you look at it, just one person and you compare their right hip to their left hip, they sure, could have sure different depths in the acetabulum and that means the foot positioning may even be different is there any way in which you would screen or help somebody yeah. find the correct foot yeah, position that's a good question and that's something that um myself and my colleague dean somerset try to hammer home when we do our complete shoulder hip blueprint like we 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 do this course with a lot of fitness professionals in the crowd and we 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 kind of lean into this idea of asymmetry like we've been programmed as fitness professionals we've been programmed to think that asymmetry is bad and it has to be corrected and that if you don't correct it, like you're, you're going to break everybody. Um, you know, the human body is a little bit more resilient than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you look at like actual, uh, like hip pelvic structures of, of actual human skeletons, you'll see that there's a wide variety of depths and widths and, you know, you know, hip, hip acetabulum's pointing in different directions and femoral necks in different directions and lengths of the femurs and, so to think that everyone has to be pigeonholed into the same stance and into the same way of, of deadlifting and squatting with, you know, toes pointing straight ahead, symmetrical stance, it's just silly. <laughs> and, um, you know, and there, there, you can, you can just look at structures, like structures of, of, of human skeletons and see that they're different. So, um, yeah, and, and the easiest way to kind of, to assess for that because we don't have x-ray vision um, outside of getting an x-ray you can't really tell but you can do a hip scour which dr stewart mcgill um has popularized in the last in the last probably decade or so uh he has a very um a very good uh, video on youtube uh breaking it down a lot better than i can over a, a podcast but you know you can have somebody lie on their back and you know and just kind of their anatomy is going to tell you kind of where 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 home base is, and you can kind of figure out like where where a good stance for them is going to be, or their squat, and you know what stance is going to be benefit beneficial for them for for the deadlift. And if, but even if you don't do that, you just experiment. Like honestly, I view squat and deadlift and hip assessment in general as going to the optometrist. So anyone who's been to an optometrist who has glasses, I mean, you're wearing a pair of glasses. I, I wear glasses when I'm, well, I'm supposed to wear glasses. I don't wear them often. But you have different prescriptions for different eyes. Like your left eye prescription is going to be different than your right eye. Uh, and when you go to an optometrist and you, you, you look, you're looking through that thingamajigger, they have you look and they say, does this look better or does that look better? Does this look better or does that look better? That's kind of what I'm doing when I assess somebody's squat or deadlift stance. I play around with foot position, okay? I say, okay, point your right toe out a little bit more. Squat down. Does that feel better or does it feel worse? Okay, now stagger your stance. Does that feel better? Does that feel worse? Widen your stance. Does that feel better? Does that feel worse? And we're trying to find their prescription. And to me, if someone's been told that they have to squat with a symmetrical stance 
with their toes po- to- pointing straight ahead and it feels like garbage and, not, and oftentimes it does. Uh, some people can get away with it and they're fine. Um, but a lot of people it doesn't, that's not, that doesn't feel good. But then I, I play around with their foot stance and something just like, you know, just clicks for them where it's to the point where they can squat deeper. It looks better. It feels better. It feels more powerful. They feel more stable. Um, why would I not want to uh, use that? Um, and I know it's a, it's, it's quite the contrast and thinking that a lot of fitness professionals are, are used to. And they'll say, well, aren't you creating more dysfunction by leaning into that asymmetry? I would, I would argue no, because I would say, well, this is what their anatomy probably likes and everyone's a little bit different. But even if that were the case, I don't feel having somebody do three, four, five, six sets of a staggered stance squat during the week is going to cause irreparable harm. And even, even if that were the case, this is why we use single leg work, posterior chain work, and we use other varieties of exercises to, to bridge that gap anyway. So, um, yeah, I just, I just find it, you know, I, I shouldn't say comical because it's not funny, but I just find it you know, weird that, you know, it, it's, it's a hard conversation to have sometimes. I think when people see it done in action, the way Dean and I do it, it kind of clicks and they get it. Um, but, you know, there's still some pushback on it. And there's still there's still certain camps in the industry that feel like, no, this is the only way you can squat and deadlift. You have to have the symmetrical stance. And, you know, I'm just like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I, I, yeah, it just boggles my mind sometimes. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I mean, we're all, we're all, we're all in this to get people better results and have them improve and, and whatnot. I don't feel like they're wrong and I'm right and I'm right and they're wrong. Um, you know, but it's just, you know, that, that, that's my approach. I'm not, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm 100% correct, but that, that's my rationale for it. Yeah. It brings up an interesting topic, actually. Usain Bolt has scoliosis, fastest man on earth, and I think, okay, his acceleration on paper sucks. Yes. But obviously, fastest man on earth. He makes up for it somehow. Yeah, he makes up for it. You know, and there's a lot of, I mean, mean, it just so happens like, uh, um, you know, I just saw a thread on social media in the last day or two about um, this physical therapist you know, basically saying like, you know, young kids shouldn't lift weights and that you're causing irreparable harm and you're going to ruin their, their growth plates. And, and then he started talking about like, you know, I have a colleague whose son was doing like this beautiful clean and, 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 and standing up. And it, I mean, he, he's a young kid. He's, I think he's five. <laughs> um, and the, the, like the, the physical therapist was made to kind of like, Oh, knees over toes are probably cause his quads are tight. Um, and my, and my colleague was like, he's five, nothing is tight. Like, you know, I, I just feel like some, some professionals are so, are so ingrained to think that they have to seek out dysfunction with people, um, that they have to point out every little thing that's wrong, that everything has to be perfect according to a textbook. Um, life is not a textbook. It's just not. Um, and yeah, and, and Usain Bolt is a, is a perfect example of that. I mean, there's probably some people who would try to fix like that. And, and if you try to fix that, he probably wouldn't be as fast. You know, no. it's like, um, you know, he's doing something to compensate for that. And, and obviously he's done pretty well for himself. So like, yeah, um, we don't, we don't, we have to get out of this idea that we have to fix this perceived dysfunction with people. Um, 
is it am I am I, is it to say that you know can sometimes these things cause people to be in pain and have cause harm to them? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I've never I, I've kind of gotten away from this train of thought that okay, you know, someone's left shoulder is more internally rotated than the right, and we have to fix it. If they were coming in with this long history of like left shoulder pain, sure, maybe I would look into that a little bit more. But if I see it with a healthy individual, you know, I. I think a well-structured program is going to fix it anyway, um, but I'm not going to go out of my way to like point it out and say, "Oh, we have to we have to do this corrective exercise protocol to fix that internal rotation of your left shoulder." It's just like we're just wasting time. You know, I want to get people to train. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, that's that's going to delay their results if you're sure. spending too much time in this fiddly information. Oh man, it's just. Uh, I mean, I've watched. I mean, in my career, I've watched many of my colleagues will say, okay, we're not going to do any loaded squats until you can do X amount of body weight squats perfectly. And I mean, you're going to be waiting a long time. Like <laughs> I probably can't do a body, body weight squat perfectly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just, um, I just don't, I, I it, it dumbfounds me that, uh, that we, we kind of pump the brakes so much and we try to keep people like that, that all the, everyone has to be in like this little bubble that we can't, we can't, uh, stress the body you know i hate that too is like people will say like oh you know knees over toes stresses the knees or such and such stresses your back or whatever and i was like that's the fucking point of exercise is you 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 that is progressive overload you stress the body so there's an adaptive response so it comes back stronger and more resilient and is able to do new things um, that's the whole point of, of, of strength and conditioning is to, is to quote unquote stress the body. Um, certainly you want to keep people out of provocative positions, but they're inevitable. Uh, they're going to happen. Um, you know, you, you try your best to like set people up. So if they, if they are in these provocative positions where they get in end ranges of motion that they can, they can, they can correct it quickly. Um, that's, that's kind of where strength comes into play right there. So, um, yeah, that's a it's a it's a long conversation to be had, and, that's, and I don't want to come across as a curmudgeon, um, but uh, you know maybe it's my you know I'm 43 now, so maybe my old man age is starting to kick in. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'd love to obviously touch on the hip a little bit more in a bit, but uh, sure. what I'm curious about, um, admittedly, this is something that I've really been implementing into programs. Um, I'd say for at least five years now, is the whole ratio between pushing actions to um, horizontal pulling actions, such as, you know, if we're looking at pushing actions, bench press, and if we're looking at rowing actions, maybe a single arm row or a face pull. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you do recommend, um, you often recommend one pushing action to one rowing action. And although this is something I've heavily looked in, um, I would just like to hear you um kind of elaborate on why you go about this ratio so i think you know when we talk about programming balance uh i'm sure you would agree with me that for most trainees are very push dominant meaning you know like men and women like to bench press they like to train their mirror muscles like what they can see in the mirror which, which is, involves a lot of pushing actions, you know, and then you have a lot of people who spend an inordinate, an inordinate amount of time of their day in front of a computer because they work in an office or they work from home. So again, they're very 
you know, their kyphotic rounded shoulders, internally rotated forward head posture. And then you compound that with, you know, a lot of bench pressing, a lot of bicep curls, a lot of crunches, you know, a lot of people aren't doing themselves any favors from a postural standpoint. Like, and, I, and I'm not some of those things that like, you know, someone presents a certain way that they're, they're dysfunctional. They're going to be in pain or whatever. I mean, that, that's also not true. Um, I think generally speaking, a, a good way to go about things is, yeah, you look at somebody's program and, you know, you should see a, a, a nice complement of equal pushing exercises to equal rowing exercises or pulling exercises, equal quad dominant, hip dominant, horizontal push, uh, or vertical push, vertical pull. Um, I think that's a nice starting point for most people. I think if they're, if you're doing that, you're probably gonna, you're probably gonna do your best to like, um, stave off injury as best you can. You're going to have a pretty well balanced person in front of you, in front of you. Things are great. Um, you know, I think when it comes to the push pull ratio, I, in, in recent years, you know, and going back to my days at Krusty Sports Performance, I'd probably skew a little bit more of like a two to three to one ratio of, of pulling to pushing. Um, just because I often say kind of we have to have an unbalanced program to, to balance people. So because we're so anterior, um, pushing dominant, like we have to do a lot more rowing actions to, you know, counteract that. So, you know, the bulk of my programs skew a little bit more posterior chain just because I feel like people are very anterior mirror muscle. Yeah. I love it. I love to train people's hamstrings and I love to train their glutes and I love to train their erectors and I like to train their rhomboids and their lats. Um, just because I feel like, on their own, they are training a lot of the opposite of that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I tend to tend to fall on the line. And, and honestly, when it comes to rowing and horizontal rows in particular and shoulder health, I really don't feel people can get enough of that. Um, you know, I'm actually, if I'm programming like a four to five day training split for somebody, it's not uncommon for me to put in a rowing movement each day. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be like a super heavy loaded one. Um, you know, when we talk about one arm cable rows or face pulls or, or, you know, anything of that source, like those can be them for higher reps just to get a little bit of volume in and, um, you know, counteract the, the fact that people are sitting at a desk all day. Um, so yeah, long, long answer, shorter and in a shorter version, you know, that ratio is probably a little bit more of like a two or three to one instead of one to one, um, in, in that regard. But, but again, I, I, I cater the program to the individual. So that, that is not a formula that is just like hands down cemented in stone. Absolutely. Everyone does that, but, yeah. um, you know, it's just catered to the individual. Yeah. It's really interesting. What I will say as well about rowing actions, it's bloody difficult to cause yourself a shoulder injury with any sort of rowing action. Yeah. Well. I think, you know, I think, um, True. I mean, but then, but then again, there's, there's been many times people have come in with complaining of shoulder pain and I watch them do a rowing action and, you know, they're one of those people that like their elbow goes way behind their, their back and like their shoulder rolls forward and, yeah. you know, and, and, and they, and they wonder why their bicep tendon hurts is because they're doing the rows incorrectly too. So, you know, a lot of times, um, oftentimes the fix for a lot of people isn't so much like going down the corrective exercise rabbit hole. It's just showing them how to do a push up correctly, showing them how to do a, a cable row or a one arm dumbbell row correctly or any kind of row correctly. Um, and just making sure they're in a better position. And then voila, we're good. I mean, honestly, 
the last few times I've spoken to Equinox trainers here in the States, when I talk about the shoulder and, you know, we get very corrective. Uh, we we want to be cute with our programming. We want to we want to wow people with our with our breathing drills and, you know, all this corrective stuff for the shoulder. You know, and there's and again, I've, I've had many instances of, of guys coming in and women coming in complaining that their shoulder hurts and like when they bench press. Um, and myself, years ago, I would have been the corrective exercise guy. Okay, let's look at this. Let's look at that. Um, now I'm just like, well, let's look at your bench press. <laughs> okay, if if the bench press bothers your shoulder, instead of me saying let's 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 put in this laundry list of corrective exercises for your shoulder, external rotation drills, breathing drills, you know, working on upward rotation, etc. Let's look at your bench press. Um, and there, oftentimes, I can watch somebody bench press. And, and, and find a thing or two or three that I can tweak with their technique that will make it a little bit more shoulder friendly. And voila, it doesn't hurt. So I don't, it isn't the fact that they have to go through like this whole eight week corrective exercise program. They just haven't been taught well on the bench press. So I'll start there. <laughs> and, then, and then they're training, uh, you know, and it feels like training and they are training. And, and I just think it's a great way of building rapport with your clients because no one, no one gets excited to go to a training session to do to lie on their side and do external rotation drills or to do PRI drills. Um, they want to go train. Uh, so oftentimes my, my approach to fixing stuff is to coach the movement and make it better and put them in a better position. And, you know, and, 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 and that is oftentimes more than enough for people. And, and then the program just kind of takes care of itself. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's quite interesting actually. I mean, you pretty much you can pretty much use the movement. Um, obviously, you're looking at the technique, but sometimes the movement in itself will screen out the injury anyway. Sure, I mean, if they're doing it correctly, yeah. Um, it's ha- it happens all the time where push-ups hurt, or a row hurts, or a bench press hurts, and you know, a lot of times push-ups hurt because a lot of people don't protract at the top. Like I want, I want the shoulder blades to move around the rib cage. And a lot of times when somebody does a push-up, their shoulder blades are basically touching the entire time. You know, and I want, I want the shoulder blades to be moving around the rib cage, like getting that little, you know, if you want to call it like a push-up plus at the top. So when they, when they finish at the top and their arms are completely, completely extended, I want them to like push away a little bit further. You know, so they get a little protraction. Yeah. So they get a little bit more serratus activation. Um, and oftentimes that, like, oh, that doesn't hurt. That doesn't. That actually feels better. I'm like, okay, let's run with that. <laughs> like, you know. Um, and then, and then, yeah, the, the, and then we can train. And and then a lot of times they're they're just gonna get better because they're doing smarter training. Um, and they're not they're not just feeding. Uh, the thing that's been causing their shoulder harm or their knee harm or the back harm because now they're 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 kind of protecting it because they're in a better position and they're actually doing it correctly. It's weird how that works. You know, if they if, if people do stuff correctly, like that is corrective. Yeah, magic. <laughs> it's weird how that works. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, obviously, like these sort of ratios, like the um, like I said, the two to three we were talking about earlier between pushing and pulling actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, although they're not set in stone, I'm just curious. Um, we're kind of like in glutination everywhere at the moment. Everybody is absolutely obsessed with uh, working those external rotator muscles. And I'm just wondering, um, 
I suppose I'm very curious as to if there is a ratio, as a rough guideline, not an absolute guideline, but if there's a rough ratio as to how many adductor exercises some should someone be doing in comparison to external rotators such as their glute muscles. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I do find a lot of people don't get a lot. I, now, every, we're, we're, it's now, the joke now is like bice, or glutes are the new biceps or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, people, people are very obsessed with training their glutes of late. And they have very strong external rotators and very strong abduction muscles, which is fine. It, aesthetically, it looks great. Um, you know, certainly from a performance standpoint, it's never a bad thing to have a, a, a pair of glutes on you. Um, but I will, I will say, a lot of people, you you rarely see somebody training their adductors in a in a in a direct fashion. And when we talk about honestly, a lot of times when I have somebody come in with you know, sore knees or cranky knees, or there's just a lot, like a lot of knee pain. I'll often find they just have very weak adductors, and they 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 they. I mean, that does help stabilize the knee. Um, so you know, I, I I've been doing a lot more Copenhagen side planks with people. Um, those fire up the adductors pretty well. <laughs> uh, there's there's a myriad of uh, variations to do. Um, I can't say I can't say in my head that I have an exact ratio of like adduction to abduction that I like. Again, you could say a one to one ratio is a nice start, um, but uh, you know, of late I've been definitely going on my way to prioritize a little bit more adduction, you know, with Copenhagen side planks and just like actually more like frontal. I, I think honestly the way to solve it is to get people out of sagittal plane. Uh, and get them in more frontal plane and transverse, and so so the adductors can kind of, you know, have a experience a little bit more movement and 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 have and be forced to work and stabilize. Um, so you know, adding in like lateral lunges and you know even like curtsy lunges or um, you know what I mean honestly having somebody do a a, a correct one-legged Romanian deadlift. I mean, that, that trains the adductor. I mean, it trains both, of course, but it definitely trains adduction too. Um, cause now it has to, now we have to stabilize the pelvis and, you know, all that jazz. So, um, you know, yeah, I think it's just one of those things where at, me as a coach, again, I don't go down the rabbit hole of like proper ratios and, you know, we have to have a number, a certain number of adduction to abduction, but I do like to train, um, make sure they're just doing their movements correctly. Um, and I, I just think the issue kind of takes care of itself. If that makes any sense. Yeah, massively. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's, there's stuff I've used where like I'll have people do, uh, you know, adduction slides on the, on the valve slides where they're in a tall kneeling position or, um, I'm not even actually opposed to people doing, um, the adduction machine. <laughs> I mean, uh, just to isolate them. But, um, I do think single leg work kind of solves the issue as a whole. Um, I think oftentimes if, if people just did more single leg work, um, they're going to train both the abductors and adductors and because and, and the, the, they're going to be forced to stabilize a little bit more and, and turn on and, and engage more. And um, I think that, that will solve a lot of the issues too. Brilliant. So out of curiosity, like in what scenario would you put adductor isolation exercises into a training program so obviously it's going to be covered you know, in a lot of compounds yeah so i think you know athletes <laughs> um <laughs> comes in play um certainly there's post rehab situations where you know someone coming off of like patellar tendinopathy or 
you know, anything with that adductors are going to come into play. Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think too. Uh, I would, that, that would probably, those would be off the top of my head. I would, I would throw them in, in, into those, into that demographic. But, um, you said just like what populations need more adduction work. Um, yeah, pretty much. What I'm curious about as well is how would it actually fall into a program? Because in the UK, it's very popular to do kind of like a lot of the prehab stuff and rehabilitation stuff after the actual workout. But sure. sometimes I find by doing it beforehand, it reinforces it. It acts almost as somatic feedback. So it reinforces sure. good technique throughout the rest of the workout. I like, if you do it I like that approach. I like that approach. I mean, certainly um, when I have people perform their warm ups, a lot of it includes like the the varying the various lunges I want them to be doing, um, you know, maybe even doing Copenhagen side planks at the start of their session, just to kind of like turn stuff on, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, so then when we do go deadlift or we do go squat, you know, they're just they just they're better engaged and, and stuff feels a little bit better. And um, you know, I I I can't say I go out of my way currently to you know definitively putting in a lot of direct adduction work but if someone's coming in with like a history of knee pain um particularly on it also if they're if they're playing any kind of sport um i would i would put in some direct adduction work you know whether it's some um, valve slide stuff or copenhagen's or you know like lateral lunges or versus band or anything like that yeah i've um, only recently been playing about with the copenhagen side plank and yeah. it is awesome it is yeah I mean, and it's a, it's an exercise that, you know, it's pretty user friendly. I mean, you're not going to, I don't feel like that's an exercise that's going to be that anyone's going to get hurt doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can progress it by adding in different levers and movement and, um, you know, so yeah, definitely very effective and people feel it for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I did. I only started doing it, um, a couple of weeks ago and, yeah, walking was hard the next day. Yeah, yeah. If you do it right, yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of going away from obviously looking at the hips, I'm curious. Um, your demographic, you obviously help people get stronger. You've worked with a lot of athletes in your time with, um, well, with Cressy Performance and with your current venture too. And I'm curious um, if there's anything from an athletic training program that you think someone from the general population should fit in, whether that be periodization, recovery interventions, plyometrics. Is there anything that you see in an athletic training program that people should be fitting in? Because in my experience, people often fit in the wrong things. For example, you see a 60-year-old man trying to do a clean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that wouldn't be my go-to for sure. Um, I get asked often, like, what, what I, you know, when I write a program for an athlete compared to I write a program for a regular person, uh, what's, what's the difference? Like what do you, and I, I will be brutally honest and say not much. Yeah. Um, you know, my, even, even my average per people are, are still deadlifting, squatting, pushing stuff, carrying stuff, doing single leg work. They're doing rows or doing pushups. I would say the only difference between them and the athletes is certainly the loads they're using uh, and certainly the speed at which they're doing those those movements. Um, that's really the big difference. Um, but even, I would say, 
I think one thing that the the average person lacks that they should probably do more of is low grade plyometric work. Um, yeah. And I think a person that is doing this very well at the moment is Lee Taft. Uh, so on on his Instagram and on his Twitter account for I think the last few se- several weeks, if not months, every morning he he puts up a video catered to adults, meaning people who are 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, and saying, here's some skipping drills or, or agility drills and jumping drills that you can add into your daily that, that are very basic. Um, but because you don't, I think people view plyometric drill and agility drills that they have to be the, these fancy exercises. And a lateral shuffle or a lateral or even skipping is a plyometric. Yeah. Um, and I think that's more than enough for most people to maintain some form of athleticism. Um, and the research will back this up too. I mean, figure, you know, when we start getting in the senior citizen population, you know, what's detrimental to them a lot is, is falling and losing their balance. Um, and, and, and that comes with from a, a, certainly we can talk about balance training, but, um, but, but, but power training, like being able to, to, you know, recover from a stumble and that, that is power training. Um, so they don't fall. Uh, and I think if we, if you just add in some basic plyometric drills, like skipping, um, lateral shuffles, you know, forward shuffles, and it doesn't have to be like bounding and triple jumps and, you know, all this crazy, crazy stuff. But, um, I would, I would encourage people to, to seek out Lee's, uh, Instagram and Twitter. Cause he's putting out and the, and the videos are like two minutes at max. Uh, and, and he, he's catering them to adults and they're, they're brilliant. I mean, it's just like these really simple cone drills and that, that you can do in the living room. They, they, you don't even have to be on a field to do them. Um, so I think, but yeah, those, those very, those low grade plyometric jumping, skipping drills are, are, is probably the one thing I think a lot, most average people lack in their programming. It's got such a massive anti-aging benefit. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Coming from a guy who ruptured his Achilles, like, you need to do more of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because pe- when people think of plyometric, automatically they think jump, but arguably it's about how you work the stretch shortening cycle. A kettlebell swing is yeah. probably something that can be classed as a plyometric exercise. I mean, uh, when I was at Cressy Sports Performance, I mean, med ball drills to a wall i mean that 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 is power like i i admittedly do not have a lot of experience doing the olympic lifts so i am not the person to to talk about that i do think they're important i do think they work i absolutely think they they're they 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 improve power and explosiveness of course um but for the average person like if they're doing if they're doing a bevy of med ball drills um and doing some kettlebell swings and maybe doing some tempo sprints and skipping, like that's more than enough <laughs> yeah. uh, to to for for the demands of their everyday life. I mean, they're not they're not Indiana Jones, um, yeah. you know. Like they they it's not like they their day to day life is going to require them to jump over a snake pit and you know you know have be in a sword fight with somebody. <laughs> you know, this is like skipping. I mean, I. I that's, that's honestly a very good litmus test for me oftentimes is that if I, even with my younger athletes, I'll say, show me your skip. And it's awful. Most people cannot skip. <laughs> like, and they have to think about it. And it's like, it's just, I mean, they'll figure it out like eventually. It doesn't take long, but 
Um, but yeah, it doesn't have to be this crazy, fancy, um, complicated endeavor. Like, um, yeah, med ball drills serve, serve, serve that purpose as well. Yeah. But, uh, by skipping, do you prioritize, for example, like the A skip or is there any specific drills that no, you appreciate? It would just be it would, like, I'll start with like high knee marching first. Um, you know, I'll have them do like a, they'll, they'll, I'll have them hug like a med ball. You know, so they get their abs on and they work on just getting their high, their, their high, high knee marching. And then that, that will kind of gravitate to like a four a linear skipping. You know, then we can we can progress that to some lateral skipping. Then we can progress that to, you know, high knee skips where they're actually kind of bounding up in the air. Um, I just so I always say I, I just don't want it to be like a Goldilocks skip or, or a Dorothy, a, a Dorothy skip from like Wizard of Oz. It has to be an athletic skip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, um <laughs> Uh, it's not like, the, it's not like this, like, oh, la di da di da that's not the skipping I'm talking about, yeah. um, you know, down the yellow brick road skipping. Uh, but, um, does that answer your question? I think that, yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's, I want it to be an athletic skip and, and, um, but to me, that's a very, that in and of itself is, is more than what most people need. I think that's, that's fine. If I'm working with a, you know, a 50 year old who hasn't done any, anything athletic for, for decades, um, skipping is going to be their home base for a while. There's plenty we can do. <laughs> awesome. Um, so pretty big question. I've okay. just been very curious, um, about this. What is your pet peeve in the fitness industry right now? Oh boy. Um, you know, I am, I am not a confrontational person. Um, mm. I think you know that. You said you've read my stuff and you follow yeah, me. Like, I, not, I, yeah. I am not confrontational at all. Um, and I, I, I definitely take middle ground on pretty much any topic. Um, I think the industry does a very good job. We have those people that have the pendulum way to the right on one topic and those other way to the left on the topic. And there's, there's always a middle ground. You know, I hate it when people discuss like, low bar versus high bar squats and, you know, hit versus cardio and sumo versus conventional deadlift and Olympic lifting. And uh, everyone hates each other in, in the fitness industry. It's yeah. like, but we agree on way more than we disagree on. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Uh, I think the thing that, that is my biggest pet peeve are, we kind of, we kind of hit on it earlier. It's just the, those coaches that feel like their way is the only way of coaching any movement. Yeah. Um, where like if you don't follow their protocol or their way of, of coaching a squat or a deadlift or a swing or whatever, um, that you're an idiot uh, and that you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and again, I hit on this a little bit earlier because I, I think everyone's a little bit different. Um, yeah. I don't I, I, I think it's silly to think that everyone is going to be doing a, uh, a low bar uh, symmetrical stance squat. <laughs> um you know, it's just, it's just not the case. And, um, I just don't have a lot of respect for, I wouldn't say respect. I don't have a lot of patience, uh, for those coaches who are, who are confrontational and feel like it's like they haven't changed their ways in years and years and years. Like this is the only way of, of doing, of coaching it. And you're an idiot. And, um, I just, uh, I, I, I don't have the patience for that. So I think that's at this stage in my career, um, that's probably my biggest pet peeve is that. Yeah. I mean, obviously like, you know, confrontational, 
little person. So that's why I thought it'd be such an interesting one to ask you. And yeah, I do suppose it's not really the sexy thing to do at the moment, is it? Like it's it's good to have a stance in the fitness industry, almost. I mean, sure. Um, I mean, I you you probably know the phrase. Like there 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 are um, uh, principles that are pretty universal in the, in the industry, but methods are kind of what we argue about. Yeah. Uh, you know, like for example, a principle is like you need, in order to get stronger, you need progressive overload. Like that to me is a principle that you can't really argue about. Like you're not going to get stronger if you don't use progressive overload. It's just kind of impossible to do. Um, however, the methods of progressive overload uh, are what we argue about. Like you have people who are like undulated periodization, you have linear periodization, you have chains, you have accommodating resistance, you have all sorts of, you know, beeps and bloops and machinery and trains of thought. And, um, you know, that, that's why we assess. That's why we take, we, we, we write programs for the individual rather than, you know, for your ego. And, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, yeah, it, it, just, it just, sometimes it's just dumbfounds me when I get on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and people are arguing about stupid shit. And I'm just like, like if you guys were in the same room, you guys would agree on 99.5% of everything. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just, oh man. It's just, I mean, I understand that's just human nature to be, you know, have to prove that you're right and that. I, I honestly, whenever I get whenever I get pushed on something, and I'm fine. Like if, if I say something wrong, or if I'm wrong, I mean, I, I'm I'm certainly open to judgment and, and criticism. And that's that's part of being a public figure in the industry. But but again, I don't go out of my way to to proclaim like really extravagant things. And mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I just kind of you know use use my use my platform to relay good information and, you know, based on my experience and what's worked for me. Um, and I, I've never said I've, I'm absolutely right on anything. Um, but you know, some people think they're, 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 they're God's gift to strength and conditioning. And I'm just, so I just, I just roll, I just roll my eyes at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a way to help themselves grow, I suppose. <laughs> what was that? What a way to help themselves grow, obviously, yeah, I mean, not have more open mindedness. There's there there are coaches out there who who've been at it for a long, long, long time who are willing to admit they're wrong or they change their mind and and then you have I mean, I guess another pet peeve is then you have like a you know, a coach fresh out of college thinking that they know everything about everything. I mean, I just think that's the natural growth of a fitness professional. I think we've all been there. We think we know yeah. everything out of college and um you know we're you know, we, we, we're, we're, we know everything and we're just going to, we're going to change the industry. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, you know, I just try to stay in my, stay in my lane as best I can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so my next question would be what books, uh, what book have you most recommended or you may have even gifted to friends and colleagues? There's a few. Um, um, one that I've, one that I've recommended quite a bit is the, the, not the war, the war of art by Stephen Pressfield. Oh, fantastic book. Um, you know, cause I, cause I think if anyone like I'm, I'm also, I hate saying it, but I'm, I'm, 
because I it sounds pretentious, but I'm also a writer. I, I don't I don't label myself a writer, but obviously I, I do a fair bit of writing in the industry, and um, uh, so that that's a book that really resonated with me quite a bit. Was was the, was was that? And anyone who is interested in pursuing a career in writing um, or just writing in general, um, that's a very easy read and it's a quick read, um, and and it's a read that punches you in the face because um, it's very straightforward. Um, cause like, you know, like, um, writing something, I mean, the, the, that creative process is a very arduous process for some people, um, for most, for most actually. And, and Steven Pressfield, I mean, he's someone who was in the game for years and years and years before he made it as a writer. Um, you know, and that, that, that book is kind of about that. It's like, you, you have to kind of Except that it, it, it sucks, <laughs> and uh, um, but it, but it's such a brilliant book, um, and it's a quick read. I think I think most people could probably read it under an hour, um, yeah. maybe maybe a little bit over. But um, I've gifted that book um, quite a bit. Um, I also think, from a, a strength and conditioning standpoint, I do think Advances in Functional Training by Mike Boyle um, is a great book. I think that's yeah. a book that kind of is a very cohesive. Um, Non, uh, I, cause I, I honestly, I hate reading research. I'm not a research person. I respect it. Um, of course. Um, but that book to me, of course, includes research, but it's not, it doesn't read as such. You know what I mean? It's just a very, it's like basically his, it's basically an amalgamation of his, his career as a strength and conditioning coach and what's worked for him and his athletes. And, you know, I think that's a nice, I, I would definitely put that in a, in a, you know, top five books. I think, fitness professionals should read, um, yeah. is, is that one. Um, you know, and then, uh, I would say recently what the one book that's really blew my mind the most is, is a book called the body by Bill Bryson. Um, you know, he, he's just a brilliant writer. Like I, I love Bill Bryson's work. Um, and this book, I mean, it's called the body for a reason. It's an entire book on the human body. Um, and just like the, the weirdness of it and like the science behind it and just like the weird, you know, just mechanisms and about like there's chapters on digestion and, and the brain and the nervous system and, and sex. And, um, it's just like all these weird factoids and, you know, such, such, such cool backstories and, um, so anyone, and, it, and it's it is a very entertaining read because uh, he's just a phenomenal writer. Um, so it's not an anatomy book <laughs> at all. <Yeah. laughs> uh, I know it's called the body, so people think it's like it's about insertions and origins, and it is not that at all. It's basically you know, it's it's just the science, um, you know, and research, and um, you know, just awesome stories about about the body. Um, so I would highly recommend that one currently. Amazing. Um, yeah, everything like you've recommended and everyone you mentioned, uh, I'm going to be listing everything in my show notes over on the website. Oh, great. Yeah, great. So, um, yeah, I haven't read The Body, actually, but the other two books you mentioned um, are just absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I just finished reading um, Advances in uh, Functional Training. I think I yeah. finished reading that for the third time about two weeks ago. Very geeky, yeah. I know. Um, another one that just popped my head too is, um, facts and fallacies by Mel Siff. Um, on that book to be, I mean, it's an older book cause I think that was published in the early two thousands. Um, but, um, 
I mean, Mel Sith kind of like one of the godfathers of, of biomechanics. Um, yeah. And that book just kind of debunks a lot of like common fallacies and myths in the industry. Um, so anyone who's looking for like ammunition to to when when dumb shit comes up um, that's been debunked like years ago, like that's the book that you can reference because he, he does a good job of doing that. <laughs> Knowledge bump. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um. Yeah, we're about to um, we're about to wrap everything up. So my last question for you: What advice would you offer to your younger self when starting out in the industry? Um, man, that's a good one. I would, you know, that's a tough question because I get asked this a lot, and I never have a good answer at all. I always fail miserably at this answer because um, I feel like, I mean, the I feel like the correct thing to say is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, cause I mean, if I, I mean, cause I'm, I'm here where I am for a reason because of what I've done, uh, done in the past. Um, you know, I, I always say the one thing I, I probably should have done sooner as a fitness professional, um, is understand the importance of reading about, um, financial savviness, uh, um, and the importance of like planning for retirement and preparing for taxes and, because I think as fitness professionals are never taught that stuff. Um, you know, as far as like, okay, do I do a SEP IRA or do I do a, this IRA or do a 401k or what? I mean, and then what do I do for, because I mean, health insurance and, you know, how do I plan for retirement? Is that even a thing if, as a fitness professional? And wh- how do I pay my taxes? What am I like? Wh- how much do I owe? Or, um, you know, I, I would definitely recommend to one of the best investments you can do is is to have an accountant. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I don't I don't know what it's like in the UK with stuff like that, but um, you know, I I had to learn the hard way early in my career that I I couldn't rely on my own self to do my own taxes. I I I I really messed up <laughs> uh, early early in my career doing that. Um, so yeah, ha- having a, having a, a good accountant who understands the fitness industry and like what you can write off and what you can't. And, um, but yeah, certainly like reading more books on, into, um, financial responsibility, uh, probably would have helped me a lot earlier in my career than, than, than waiting so long. Um, one book that really resonated with me the most that's helped me in my business is profit first. Um, that system you know, when I left Cresty Sports Performance to open up my own small studio and kind of start my own gym, that system is what I've been using for the past five years, and it's just, it's worked perfectly for me. It just makes it's it's simple, um, it makes a lot of sense, and it just helps you better prepare like where your money is supposed to go, um, so you actually can pay yourself, uh, which is kind of important. <laughs> uh, and, this, and obviously, this kind of goes into um, entrepreneurship. Um, a lot of that's taking care of yourself if you if you work for a gym or you're you're an employee of somebody. But um, but still, uh, it's a valid book just to help you learn a little bit more financial responsibility. So I guess I guess yeah, that would be my answer. Just like l- leaning a little bit into more of that stuff earlier in my career would have been you know pretty nice. <laughs> I'm trying to think now. When when did you op- open your gym? Because I remember when it was happening. I left. I left uh, CSP in 2015, so um, this is it would it'll be it'll be five years um, this fall uh, that I that I left. So, um, 
you know, I, and I was actually before the pandemic hit, I was actually in the process of expanding to a larger location um, wow. here in Boston. But um, I had to put that on pause because, you know, the, the uncertainty of the situation um, with the pandemic, you know, when uh, thankfully I was able to back out. Uh, it, it's I was like this close to finalizing the lease and I would have been in it for a build out and like, OK, like you're in. Um, so I, I hope to reassess that situation uh, next year because I, I do think it's a, um, a viable option that will help me to kind of like better um, scale my business. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy staying put where I am now and too. So, um, you know, it's working very well. So um, fingers crossed that the, the pandemic doesn't last for too much longer. Although we're going to be in it for a little bit while longer, unfortunately, but. Yeah, there's a lot of people um, been hit by it. Yeah, I just um, I just thought I'd ask that. I just remember at the time there was a lot of well, there was a lot of that stuff on social media. Oh my god, he must have a, he must have had a falling out. No, he didn't. He no. he's just opening his own facility. And no, yeah, I had that. I had that. I think that was the first question every every podcast I did immediately yeah. after. Right? What you know behind the scenes? Like, oh, what happened? Um, nothing. It was just, it was just time to turn the page. That was the year that um, my wife and I got married. Um, you know, I'd been at CSP for eight years at that point. Um, and it was just time to, you know, move on. It was that simple as that. There was no, there was no, I mean, Eric, I mean, I was, I, as I said earlier, Eric, I was, I, we're, we still stay in touch. Me and Pete still stay in touch. Like, um, yeah. I was at, I, I saw Eric a couple of weeks ago when I ruptured my Achilles. Um, so, uh, no, we're all, we're all still very much friends. Yeah, no falling out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I just remember there was just a massive rumor that uh, went around at the time, and I just yeah. thought, oh, come on, just dude wants to open his own gym. <laughs> yeah, people, people like to gossip. <laughs> yeah, they do, they do. Okay, um, I think that wraps everything up. Awesome. It was a pleasure to chat, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yep, my pleasure. That wraps up today's episode of Coach Gethin Radio. Please be sure to check out the show notes over on coachgethin.com.